Hello and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. In this episode we talk to Mags O'Brien about her political background, the divorce referendum campaigns of 1986 and 1995, her experience with the Freedom Flotilla to Gaza in 2011, which was captured at sea and the crew held in an Israeli jail, and subsequent Palestine solidarity work with Gaza Action Ireland. Her work as a tutor with the Sibji College and combining her activism and trade unionism. And Left Lives in 20th Century Ireland, Volume 4, Women, which was published last year and is edited by Mags. Mags is a trade union activist and tutor at Sibji College. She's been involved in many campaigns, including as chair of the Divorce Action Group during the 1995 divorce referendum. She's part of the ICTU Global Solidarity Committee and has served as chair of Trade Union Friends of Palestine. She has formerly been in Labour as part of Labour Left and briefly in Democratic Left. The Irish Left Archive project is an online collection of material related to the Irish Left, available at leftarchive.ie, which aims to provide a freely accessible resource for those interested in the history of Irish Left activism and organisations. We welcome contributions of suitable documents, information, corrections and so on, uh, as well as any feedback on the podcast. You can contact us via the website or send us an email to contact at leftarchive.ie. You'll also find us on Twitter at ieleftarchive. Thanks very much to Mags for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you for listening. Now first, thanks very much, Mags, for coming on and, and giving us your time. You're welcome. Um, so to start us off, maybe you can tell us a bit about what first brought you into political activity. Yeah, um, I suppose there were a few things. First of all, I was uh, the child of um, Irish parents brought up in, in England. So you always have a particular bent, I think, anyway when that happens. And um, uh, when when I was quite young, my parents died when, when, when my father died. And um, obviously once he died, you know, we, we weren't particularly well off. And, you know, there were various circumstances and we, we had to move back to Manchester and, um, you know, things were hard enough. So I suppose I had an understanding of what the world was really about then. And then my mother got sick. And when she died, I went to live with relations in London. I was brought up by them. So, you know, possibly some of that obviously affected me. Um, The Northern background as well. I think, you know, if if you're brought up in Manchester, um, you know, those uh, red brick buildings and, you know, the back streets and whatever, you know, it is parts of it are very poor and, very very at that time it was very much you know it, it was uh smoky and you know uh, the world that the it was all the industrialization so very very much that kind of dark darkness about it and uh london then a contrast you know it was um much more um you know sophisticated if you like mm. um but w- when i was in school and in especially in in um, london i remember at one stage um we had a debate on and it was a Catholic school, of course. And um, we were asked to debate about communism and they couldn't get anybody to speak for it, of course, in a girls Catholic school. And um, anyway, I was volunteered. So when I started doing some reading around it, you know, I was, well, you know, some of these ideas aren't that bad, you know, some of these ideas I would believe in myself. And coupled with that then, um, I used to go to Hyde Park and Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park was an amazing place at the time. And I remember uh, my first introduction to Northern, Northern Irish politics 
was actually in Speaker's Corner and listening to somebody and being absolutely gobsmacked that people in the north of Ireland didn't have one person, one vote. You know, there was the, the with gerrymandering going on and not understanding any of this. And, you know, just because, you know, it, an upbringing in, in England at the time was quite reasonable and you were getting free education, you know, free doctor, all that kind of thing. So, you know, it wasn't bad. And then when you heard that there's another part of um, the so-called um, British Isles that uh, is not uh, getting the same um, treatment, uh, and then, of course, having an Irish background and being brought up on rebel songs, you know, you combine the two of those and you can very easily see that you would have uh, a nationalist bent after that, you know. But as I say, it was a, an awakening in a lot of ways as to the reality. So I was interested in the British Labour Party, but I came over to Ireland when I was 19. So I'd only voted once and I'd voted Labour over there. And, you know, that had been my interest. So then I arrived in Ireland and I often describe it as it was black and white at the time as opposed to colour in comparison to being in England uh, and it was it, it was frighteningly so and most of my Irish relations and friends didn't didn't really realise what it, how bad it was because they it was their lived experience you know yeah. uh, the influence of the church all that kind of stuff so I was coming from um, Catholic background but catholics in england were the minority mm-hmm. and also you were you know it was a totally different social kind of scene there yeah. i mean i wasn't i wasn't out very much or anything like that uh, let out because uh, my aunt and uncle were very much irish mm. catholics and you know you're not going outside the door here this kind of thing so i wasn't um i wasn't worldly wise in that i was hitting the night spots in london or anything like that but, you know, things like contraception and all those kind of things were discussed on the radio or, you know, you knew of them. And, um, the, you know, there were the things that you didn't even think about. I can remember, for instance, uh, I was doing a typing course at one stage um, and somebody telling me that her husband was getting a vasectomy the next day. Now, I mean, that conversation would never have been had in Ireland in the mm. 70s, you know. Uh, so, you know, you, you're, you're bringing, you know, two different worlds together. So I found it particularly bad. Uh, and um, I think politically then as well, you know, that that spurred me on in a lot of ways. Um, but my first real involvement, I, I had a little involvement on the um, uh, the uh, the EC voting. I would have been anti that at the time. Hmm. Um, that was early 70s, obviously. But then it was actually Karen Soar and hmm. uh, the anti-nuclear uh, mm. campaign which really uh, got me involved in more left-wing politics if you like mm. and uh and then you know that that spurred me on again because um i realized there were people out there who had different interests and who actually agreed more with me than 90 percent of the people i was meeting you know mm. um so that that probably as i say that that was the the next uh, thing on the agenda was uh, was that and then um the whole issue around contraception whatever you know mm. that just blew my mind uh and i just i resented so much the control that there was over women yeah. uh, so again i suppose that probably um brought me on to feminism more so as well there 
Um, so that was kind of my real background. And then I got involved, um, minorly involved in 83, um, the 83 campaign and the anti-amendment. Um, but then uh, 86 was the first divorce referendum. And that was really um, when I got, you know, more involved again. And, um, you know, was was I was actually on the executive of the divorce action group in eighty six, right. so I probably got around involved around about eighty four in that, and uh, was devastated after that. Yeah, uh, absolutely devastated because if you recollect, and for people that don't, you know, remember that far back, that would have been eighty six. Mm. Um, two in the opinion polls, two thirds of the population supported it. Say six months before, mm. and it ended up a total reversal yeah. uh, with mm. the vote. And that yeah. was June 86. So that was, as I say, and it was one of those times of pivotal times when you're actually saying to yourself, will I stay in this country or will I not? Yeah. And a, quite a lot of people I knew left, especially people who were separated. Yeah. And they just said, you know, we don't want to live in this country anymore. Um, and there was that terrible sense of hurt, obviously, as well, that people knew that friends and family had voted against them having a second chance, you know. Mm. So that was my my biggie. Really, was that was that, and uh, I suppose after that, then you know, um, I, I I I I joined the Labour Party after that. Um, mm. I think it was probably around 87, 88 I joined the Labour Party. Right. And um, but I would have always been more on the left of the Labour Party. I was involved in Labour Left um, when when I was there. Mm. Um, and thought that a political party was the way, obviously, to um, to move the liberal agenda, the you know the left agenda. Mm. Um, but I, I was probably about I was probably about five or six years in the Labour Party when I got fed up fighting. Um, uh, I mean, it, it was great in some ways initially. You know, all that fighting mm. was very exciting mm. times to be in, and it would have been um, you know around the spring tide. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, suddenly there there was Labour with the possibility of, and what was it, 30, 30, um, 33, 30, I think. 30, 33, yeah, yeah. thirty three uh, TDs elected, you know, and uh, you're you know you could actually see something, and but the the problem for me was that it the, it was still controlled by that social democratic wing. Um, yeah. that you know to me were not progressive enough and the, the issue of coalition was always there yeah mm -hmm. and I always felt that you know um, it was all all very well to go into a coalition if you were uh, in the majority and if you could control the agenda mm. but if you were the the junior partner in anything like that yeah. you were always going to get kicked around that's the way I felt about that so yeah. I left the Labour Party I was in DL for a while uh, I left DL and I was back in the Labour Party for a while right. and again found that, um, you know, when you look back, you realise you're spending more time fighting than you are actually doing. Mm. And to me, my whole uh, idea about getting involved in politics was to actually do something. Yeah. So mm -hmm. then I ended up, in, you know, uh, getting involved more in single issue campaigns. And of course, uh, the 1995 uh, divorce referendum, obviously, um, was uh, I was chair of the divorce action group at that stage, mm. and divorce action group along with the right to, to remarry. Um, we you know we ran a campaign that was it was a very close campaign, mm. um, but I 
I credit that with actually being what broke the mold in an awful lot of ways that, you know, once the sky didn't fall, yeah. uh, the people began to realize that we could move on in this world. And that was a, it was an awful campaign. I mean, probably, you know, an awful lot of people now, when you're talking 1995, heard, hello, divorce, goodbye, daddy. Mm. Um, I remember being, I was speaking at a meeting in Mullingar and being handed scapulars. Um, oh. Des Hannafin contested, if you remember, uh, and it went to the Supreme Court. The referendum results were contested. Yeah. And at one stage I was in the high court and I could feel something landed on my head and there was a balcony in the high court and there was a woman up on the balcony throwing holy water down on my head. You know, and that was the kind of the level of the stuff that, um, I mean, I could recount an awful lot more things than that about, you know, the way people were treated. But, you know, that, that, as I say, that that seismic shift, I think, started then really yeah. in Ireland and then, and then moved on. And know? it was very close run. Like oh, very a, close run. Just, yeah, yeah. I mean, discussing I mean, this before, you were saying you had some, frankly, troubling thoughts about like how closely run it was. Oh, I mean, we, we literally, and um, I think I was saying that the week before, um, there were a couple of things that happened. And one of them was uh, Princess Diana at the time. Uh, did that famous interview? There were three of us in this marriage. Oh, Martin Bashir, yeah. And mm. <laughs> we we watched it. We said that's it. She's finished us. You know, I mean, it was it was that bad that we actually thought that it would influence people, and it probably mm. did to an extent as well. You know, yeah. and uh, then of course um, the that that the, the day of that referendum, you know, there was high farce as well. If you remember the um, wife swapping sodomites. That's right. Yeah, I was there. I was actually standing there, and uh, it was um, it was just so funny. Um, but you know, she should start roaring out. She has a wife swapping sodomites, you know. Um, but that was the kind of thing that we had encountered. You know, was there much contrast between the eighty six referendum experience as a campaigner and the mid nineties? I mean, it's the ninety five referendum was was successful, but it sounds like that similar sort of hostility was present so would you have seen yeah. a big difference between the two campaigns well and responses? What, actually the big difference was probably that we had our act together more in some ways okay but what had happened was what we what we were we discovered in 86 at the end of the day was there were issues like um, uh, property mm. finance um illegitimacy mm. and all of those things had had an effect on the referendum so if you start legislating, and um, it was one of the, the few things that uh, Alan Shatter did that I give him credit for was, um, you know, the uh, Judicial Separation of Family Law Reform Bill, uh, because what that meant was that you could do everything other than actually remarry after that. So you could yeah. make decisions on property, on finance and all of that kind of stuff. And then there'd been the Status of Children Act. Uh, which was Roy Johnson and his um, his partner had contested um, uh, the status of their child in Europe and the Status of Children Act abolished the concept of illegitimacy. So it meant that a child could inherit there as well. So those legal things were tied up. Yeah. Um, so what you were then fighting really was on the moral ground as opposed to on the legal ground as well. Yeah. So the groundwork had been laid in between. Yeah. yeah. And I, I also think, though, that what had happened was in 86, 
people had finally come out and told their stories. So mm. you could never put that genie back in the box again. Mm. And then more people had separated after that. So what you had was every family in the country had probably somebody, mm. you know, belonging to them that was separated and suddenly began to realize all of the mess there was over children and all that kind of thing. So, um, you know, it, you had to maybe in some ways have 86 in order to su- succeed in 95. Mm. Do you think there was a buyer's remorse as well on the part of some people that they realised mm-hmm. a mistake had been made in eight, mm-hmm. in eighty six? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and follow on from that would be: Do you think the fact, even though it was very closely fought, as we said, and there's what fifty thousand odd votes, I think, in the difference. No, it wasn't even that. It was about nine thousand. Oh, sorry, nine thousand. That's worse again. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I've obviously confabulated fifty thousand to kind of protect my mind, but is is? Do you think? Because one thing that struck me subsequently was there was the court cases and so forth. But once it had passed through, there was this very rapid sense that this was the settled will of the people in this state, citizens in this state, that now divorce was a human right, which was a right that uh, women and men had. And there wasn't going to be a return to it to contest it. Mm-hmm. And and did you get that impression, like that feeling? Oh, very much so. Yeah. Well, I think especially because there have been two referenda, mm-hmm. and then there was the Supreme Court case. Yeah. You know, the ones that was, you know, you, you couldn't even challenge it in law anymore. So you know that was full stop. And I do think, I think there were an awful lot of people who say, you know, that kind of buyer's remorse kind of thing. That there were people who probably, in on the one hand, really did want people to be able mm. to order their lives, but didn't feel that they could vote that yeah. way. So, you know, that they, were, they weren't as pushed about it as probably a third mm. should we get in those kind of circumstances, yeah. Right, okay. Do you think, because, I mean, really listen to what you're saying, clearly every subsequent referendum since has had the lessons learned from those two mm. referendums embedded in his DNA in terms mm. of the personal stories, the testimony, the clear wish to cover every legal aspect to make it as watertight as possible. Mm-hmm. But I mean, is there anything you can think of or, is, you know, having looked, say, at the, the referendums of the last 10 years, was there anything you said, oh, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely from the divorce? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you see, the other thing is you have to remember is there were a lot of people that were involved um, then that continued to be involved in a certain way. and. I'm just trying to think. Noel, the guy that died there about three, four years ago. Oh, the uh, journalist Noel Whelan. Yeah, lovely yeah. man. Noel, for instance, would have been involved, you know, uh, on a continuum there. Right. Um, but th- there were some really, really good people, say, on the PR end and, you know, uh, and just generally um, that were involved in those campaigns. Mm. And I'm thinking of, uh, you know, for instance, uh, Grania Healy be another person that comes to mind mm. uh, that have been involved since and um, obviously learned lessons um, from yeah. from it and then built on those lessons. Yeah. Uh, because even it was actually quite funny. We had the right to remarry. We had um, uh, a woman who had been a, a, a Fianna Fáil, um PR person and director of elections. Right. And she actually, the, the night of the referendum or the night after the referendum, and she, she gave us a little list of where we were going. Mm. And she had organized taxis for us. We were going here for an hour and then you're moving on to here for an hour. Wow. We were going, what's this about? You know, because we were so used to being, 
you know, just uh, the pin of your collar on stuff. Yeah. And it just goes to show that, you know, when you've got a machine behind you, you know, uh, it makes a massive difference. So I would say that every time there has been another referendum since that machine has, you know, been more and more efficient all the time. Yeah. So, you know, okay. so it was a much more sort of professionalized campaign than, yeah. than 10 yeah. years previously, I suppose. Yeah. Do you, had you felt that just in terms of the experience of campaigning and the practicalities of campaigning, then there's a big contrast in, in that organizational aspect, say between the two referenda in that case? Oh, or, God, yeah. I mean, yeah. It was seizure your pants with the ACT. But you see, the other thing as well is that people forget is that we didn't necessarily want the 86 one called. Mm. And that's, you know, what people don't realise. Divorce Action Group was a very small group. And it was Gareth Fitzgerald that called it. It was part of his liberal agenda. Mm. And he didn't even give us the nod beforehand that, you know, it was literally the last minute kind of thing. And sure, we didn't have any resources at all. Yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't have a, a you know, a, 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 a you know, a, a, something behind us to start start up and running. I mean, we were having to fundraise, do all that kind of stuff. Whereas the the right had money coming in from everywhere. Yeah. You know, so they had their big books, and mm. they also had their organisations. Mm. Uh, and we all know about some of the Irish organisations, or you know, religious organisations that yeah. are there and I'm not going to start naming names for the yeah. sake of not getting into any libelous stuff here at all. Uh, but you know we all know that there were groups that were there who would be powerful groups in society yeah. and that you know they could call on them so you know they're going to fundraise and you know even though Fianna Fáil were supposedly for um, you know on the fence at the time mm. There were an awful lot of the Fianna Fallers who would have been against, and that would have been another group that could raise a lot of money as well. So it was massively stacked against us in 86, mm. you know, with our naivety. Uh, and I mean, there were some good people working on that campaign as well. But it's just, you know, if you don't have the books and you don't have the, uh, you know, you're relying, well, like we had CE people working in the office and, you know, you were relying on, you couldn't, we ended up with a couple of staff again as well you know at the last minute but you're throwing that in at the last minute whereas yeah. other people have well-oiled machines that they can use you know yeah and by, 80, by by 95 those lessons had been learned and there was more prep but i think you were saying before even 95 you weren't sure it was the best time to go a year later might have been a bit better or yeah yeah well you know again you're talking it was only nine years after yeah and you know um and actually if you remember in the midst of that the government fell Mm. So we ended up, we didn't know what it was on. It was off. Um, and luckily, Mervyn Taylor, that was one of the few times when I was glad that it was the Rainbow Coalition, wasn't it? That that that, that he mm. came back on, I think it was the Rainbow yeah. that he came back on. And, you know, that he ended up back in. And I mean, he was now he was one of the good guys was Mervyn Taylor, you know, mm. and uh, a lot of credit to be given to him because, um, you know, it, it took a strong minister to actually. And he went, he actually did a lot of local radio, which was another thing that we didn't have in mm. 86 to the same extent, mm. uh, where 95, we were able to get a lot more out on local radio as well, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So that was, so those are huge structural changes. Mm. Yeah. Because it, it does feel like, it does feel, I mean, that was a liberalising period, that five years, the initial Fianna Fáil Labour government and then mm -hmm. uh, the subsequent Labour DL, FG government. 
and there was a push there. I mean, in relation to LGBTQ rights and so on and so mm-hmm. forth as well. Yeah. I mean, that was so. There was it was funny. It was sort of like the ice flows were beginning to break up, but nothing was sure. No, no. I mean, to the extent even you know, I I, I had to be persuaded uh, that the um, the uh, right to marry referendum would go through. You know, right. uh, because. Um, I was always afraid that they would still still be there hiding in in the long grass. You know, yeah. when you've been through that, it's very hard to to shake that. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I I thought both of the referendums in the last ten years could fail for precisely the same reason. Having been mm. having had exactly the same experience of yeah. like 80, yeah. 86 and ninety five, that feeling of like actually. There is a solid block in the society you're going to vote against any sort of liberalisation. Yeah. Well, what you forget is that because because I'm older, I forget that there's a whole younger swathe yeah. that have come up that haven't had the same. Like, what do you mean there was no divorce? You know, yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. You know, they, they've grown up in a different society than, than, than we were in, you know? Mm. Yeah, definitely. After the Divorce Action Group, after that folded, uh, you know, after the referendum, which mm. was marvellous to be able to fold an organisation. Yeah. I worked for the INOU for a couple of years. And mm. um, then I uh, I ended up working in SIT2. Right. So I think that was the late 90s. Yeah, but about 97, I went to work for SIP2. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously that took up a lot of time and energy and... Um, I was, you know, I was always involved in the trade union movement anyway, mm. uh, but more so then. Yeah. Um, so a lot of work around that. And I did some work for Congress and I was on the Commons Congress on I did some work on gender and pay. Mm. So I was working in Congress for a couple of years on that and then back to um, SIP2. And then I became a tutor. Yeah, in the SIP2 college. SIP2 college. Yeah. Um, and politically then. You know, as I say, I was in Labour left and then had left the Labour Party. Um, but there was then my major involvement. It was 2007. Um, there was a delegation went to Palestine mm. from Congress. Mm. And uh, I went with that delegation and I was always interested, obviously, mm. um, in the whole um, Israeli-Palestinian question. Um and in fact, would have come, you know, um, younger people again mightn't realize this, but there would have been a lot of pro-Israeli sentiment, you know, in the 70s and 80s yeah. with the kibbutz and all of those kind of things. And it, it was it felt that it was it could be a left and uh, mm. liberal, you know, um, leaning uh, democracy that was emerging. Uh, yeah. And obviously that's not what happened, you know, mm. um, but as I say, there would have been, and I mean, obviously a lot of sympathy as well uh, there. Um, so, you know, would have been, uh, you know, of, of that opinion on, but more, the more I began to read about um, Palestine, obviously, uh, the more I realized, you know, what was happening there. So uh, to go there in 2007 was n- no matter how, it's that thing that intellectually, mm. You might read a lot of stuff, but is there is nothing like actually seeing on the ground what's happening yeah. to, um, you know, to, to really just um, to get to you and to mean that you're never the same after seeing it. You can't unsee it and you feel you have to do something about it. So for 2007 onwards, then I got involved in 
issues, mainly in the trade union movement initially, mm. and then uh, got involved in the flotilla campaign. Right. Well, I'm just wondering, what was the response in the trade union movement towards this? Did you find that you were essentially pushing an open door or did you find any resistance towards it? Mainly pushing an open door. Uh, yeah. yeah, very, very much so. But um, again, it, you know, the trade union movement is one of those things that um, they have goodwill towards a lot of stuff. Hmm. But unless there's somebody actually in there um, loudly shouting, campaigns don't necessarily move because there's all the other issues as well you know yeah. uh, so they really need champions uh, you know any issue needs a champion within a union and you if you look at some of the unions that have done more than others on particular issues you'll find that you know you'll find a champion in there very quickly yeah. uh, and, that, and that's the reality of it you know so it's not that they would be against anything it's just that and and again you know they're fighting so many things at the same mm. time that yeah you know, if you don't have that champion there, well, then it goes down to the end of the agenda, you know? Yeah. So generally quite quite hospitable in a sense, but nonetheless oh, yeah. not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you got more and more involved. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to the extent of being on one of the flotillas, the second lot <laughs> of, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, and again, it was, um, I was only on the committee. Yeah. You know, and only, you know, you know when you go only on the committee yeah you can't do that you know because <laughs> it's one of those things when you're on the committee you're kind of oh oh well maybe i put my hand up you know uh, and that's the reality of it is that um when we were looking and you know um, if you take it for instance chris andrews was on it um mm. he he was he had been a Finnafold TD at the time. He was I don't think he was a Finnafold TD at that stage. I can't, I, you know, when you try to go back and remember these mm. things, but, you know, would have had some profile, okay? Uh, Paul Murphy was a, a TD at the time as well. Paul, mm. Paul Murphy was on it. Huey Lewis was a, a councillor as well oh, uh, from Dunleary. Um, yeah. So, you know, there was Owen oh, Phelan Megan, the lovely Phelan mm. Megan, who, who died last year, mm. unfortunately. Um, Phelan was um, on it as well, the artist, mm. and um, actually Phelan, Phelan was also the cook, so oh, right. had some hilarity with, okay. uh, with Phelan and shopping lists and whatever, you know. So it was one of those things. So yeah, so um, as I say, I you know I I ended up in spite of myself mm. on it, you know. Um, I was I was the oldest on it, of course, as well, you know. And mm. but there were only two women in the end. It ended up with only two women. So we love himself, you know. Yeah. Um. So you know, in in a lot of ways, it was probably you know you had to have a trade unionist involved and you had to have a woman involved. So yeah, you know that was me in the middle of it there. Yeah. Um. So we would would have been two thousand and eleven. Yeah, two thousand and eleven. So initially we were going in the summer, mm. and we were in Greece, and we got sabotaged. Mm. No, Turkey it was. It was Turkey. Sorry, I'm, I'm confusing myself here. Yeah, we got sabotaged. And right. uh, so that didn't sail. So uh, eventually, anyway, we went then in the November. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had the um, the distinction of having my 60th birthday on board the day we were arrested. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but it was, I'd remember it, won't I? Well, there's that, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. And... Did you feel under personal threat at the time? Did you feel your 
Oh Around my God, I'm scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, um, what happened was that um, we were, well, first of all, I was so ill. Um, I got food poisoning or, you know, whatever mm. you want to call it. Uh, the usual, you know, foreign kind of bug mm. uh, the day before we sailed. And, um, it, it, you know, if you if you read the 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 the, the trip, it, there was some hilarious stuff in it because what happened was they excluded three of us. Mm. Um, they said that the, they could only have 12. There were 15 of us. They said there could only be 12 on. And of course, the others weren't leaving us behind. Yeah. So uh, as I say, I was very ill the night before and we ended up it. We were hiding, you know, on the on the jetty and trying to run along the jetty, you know, hidden and hopping on board, you know, and I really didn't need that now the way I was feeling, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it was, you know, it was hijinks anyway. And then, of course, we had to go down below decks mm. until we, we got out of the bay and whatever, you know. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that was, uh, so I just, I think I slept for about two days. I was so bad. We just, you know, just stayed in the cabin and that was it. And I had just begun to come around um, and we were three days at sea then and, we knew that, well, I think we were on something like 40 miles from Gaza. Mm. And of course, at that stage, we were kind of going, are they going to let us get there? You know, but mm. um, obviously they weren't. So we ended up, we think there were 19 vessels surrounded us. There was us and a Canadian ship, just the yeah. two of us. Well, two boat, ships. you know, we weren't ships. So we were yeah. small enough. And they surrounded us. They water cannoned us. So we lost the electricity on the boat. And... Um, you know, they, they wrecked everything and we were, you know, we mm. were drowned at the whole lot now. And um, they then they kept backing, backing us in. So we actually ended up colliding with each other. So we were hold as well. So we were letting them water the whole way back in. And then uh, I say 19 of them include water cannons. So you can imagine what that was like. You're surrounded by, you know, 19 yeah. different vessels and those two little boats there. And of course, they kept giving us commands that we were to uh, let them board and we were to cease and all of this kind of stuff, you know. And we were saying, we're in international waters, mm. you know, you can't stop us. Da, 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 da. Um, so eventually, anyway, as I say, they boarded. And I still remember to this day, I had a young fellow of about 19 sitting looking at me with uh, a rifle and the, the red light was on me. And that was for about four hours as we were brought into Ashdod. Mm. And at the end of it, we'd no lights because the, the lights had gone. It was getting dark and mm. um, he was falling asleep. Right. So I was going, oh, God, no, I, I don't want this fella suddenly deciding, you know, that uh, he wakes up and, uh, with a jolt or whatever, you know. So it was pretty scary. It really was. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then they brought us in, strip searched us, uh, the whole lot, and um, brought us into what we didn't know at the time was a court, but it was a court. And uh, we were interrogated in there, and apparently we were we were tried for illegally entering Israel right. and sure we were in international waters. Yeah. So yeah. That was it. So then we were in prison for five days and mm. then we were taken to, um, we were taken to Tel Aviv and put in a detention center, which was actually more scary. The night in the detention center was more scary than the prison. Right. Um, because we were in myself and Zoe were in a room with about 12 other people and, um, there were some of the women who were totally hostile to us because they'd been told we were terrorists. 
and right. <laughs> we were afraid to close our eyes, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we they, and the the intimidation there. I mean, there was no water in the room. We were banging on the door to get the guards to bring water and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, you know, so it was pretty bad then. Mm. And um, so that was it. And then they brought us out and said we missed the plane. Zoe and I had missed the plane. It was like we were going shopping or something that we'd gone off shopping and we'd forgotten. They drove us around the airport um, about three times. And at this stage, separated from the rest of them, then mm. brought us back to the detention centre again. And eventually, anyway, we got out um, separately. You know, there were, there were five of us on my flight and mm. Zoe and um, Zoe and uh, Finton Lane were supposed mm. to be on the flight and they stopped them to search them. And they ended up, you know, having to wait for another 13 hours and go straight back via Turkey and whatever. So, you know, they, they did everything they could. I have to say, I give credit now to our embassy there because they were really, really good with us, you know. Mm. Um, so it's the one, one of the times when I will say we give credit to them, you know. Mm. But it was, you know, it, it was, look, it was scary, but I'm very conscious of the fact that I have privilege and that I'm, I'm, I'm white and I'm Irish and... Yeah. Uh, you know, had, a, a, you know, the, the embassy there to speak up for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a Palestinian who can be thrown into prison and nobody's there to speak up for them, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, while while it w- was unpleasant for us, we're very, very conscious of the fact that we were yeah. privileged in an awful lot of ways, you know. Yeah. But but you're shining a light on or you help shine a light. But well, that's, that's that, what that we that intended to do. Yeah. It was just to highlight yeah. the whole thing, you know. Um, right. So there were a bunch of us anyway from, from Gaza Action and we decided then um, that we wanted to still get to Gaza. So mm. 2013, uh, we went in through Egypt and across the Sinai. Right. Uh, so we actually got in. Um, and again, I mean, awful, awful stuff. I mean, to see it and to see, you know, the, the devastation there mm. and, you know, to to have to, I mean, at one stage, we weren't sure whether we're getting across the border and all that kind of stuff. So you, you understand how the Palestinians are subjected to this all the time, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I've seen a lot of um, awful things happening to Palestinians. Yeah. Uh, so that the, the current amnesty report saying about apartheid is mm. bang on the button mm. and that's it, you know. You weren't lifted the second time by the Israeli no because no. we had gone in through Egypt through Egypt yeah yeah but the problem is I don't know with even you know say six months afterwards with because that was 2013 yeah uh you know how, how we would have fared and it's, it's much harder even apparently now going across the Sinai than it was then even because we had to have an armed guard going across it you know right okay. um so um I think it's much worse now and you know it's it's sporadic as to when people get through they could be weeks waiting and you know, so it's very, very difficult for, for, for people in and out than when they can get in and out, you know. Yeah. So the that group then got action. We we then we set up the whole thing about the, the Gaza kids. Mm. So for two years we managed to bring over um the kids from a football team in Gaza mm. uh, to play soccer in Ireland. So again, that was about kind of it was giving them a break mm. and yeah. I mean, they had a fabulous time, uh, but it was also about raising awareness, you know, and, and it did. Uh, I mean, we even got the six o'clock news one evening uh, right. with it, you know, um, and a really good interview about about the kids, you know. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was about that, you know, again, trying to raise awareness. Um, 
but obviously with the pandemic we had we had hope we had problems with visas the year before mm. and we had hope to bring kids but with the pandemic of course uh, that didn't happen you know in terms of being a palestine solidarity group in ireland and on paper in many ways ireland is is certainly in the in sort of public attitude a very uh yeah pro the palestinian cause do you think as a campaign group in ireland that that's made it easier for you than it might in say another western european country um i know that the state response doesn't necessarily reflect that public attitude but um I mean, how um, do you think that plays out? I, well, I, I'm not sure, really, because I suppose I don't have much experience of, you know, what it is like in other countries. But mm. um, I think in general, it's, you know, it, it's OK. I mean, you know, I would know people in, in England, for instance, are involved and there's not a major, you know, um, there's not a major backlash against them in some ways. You know, mm-hmm. now I know there's always, you know, say universities or whatever that try to ban things and. Um, you know that that happens, yeah. But uh, I, I, I think, I think it's so damn obvious what's happening there that I, I, I don't think that you, you get the resistance you would have got maybe 10, 15 years ago. You know. Yeah. You, you'd say there's a shift in people's perceptions even across the last yes. decade and a half. Yeah. yeah. I even yeah. think in America. Uh, I mean, I would have, yeah. you know, I would have good friends in in um, in the states and the Teamsters mm. and the like, you know, mm. and uh, there would have been very little talk about it. You know, maybe ten years ago in America, uh, whereas now you know they're they're much more in tune to what's going on. You know, yeah, and and the broader Jewish diaspora as well seems to be yeah. um, key to this as well. Yes, be key to it. Yeah, yeah. particularly yeah. in the US. Yeah. So so in a sense, like it's been a case of continuing the conscious raising of the issue, getting the issue out there, getting people to recognise that it's still ongoing, that it's not stopped, that mm-hmm. and and. And presumably keeping that as a view, well, it's going, it's going to take as long as it's going to take, really. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, I take my hat off. Like I, I mean, I do some work on it, but you know, there are people who have been relentless. You know, people, for instance, in the IPSC that are mm. just resentless, relentless on this. And you know, I really take my hat off to them because um, it's very, very difficult maintaining. I know myself from you know poli- previous political involvement, maintaining that over the years and not seeing shifts. You know, or not seeing big yeah. shifts. You know, um, so yeah, I mean, it's it, it's hard going. You know, you've also you've you've lectured as part as a tutor in the Sip Two College. How do you feel like as somebody who's been active and an activist and involved in multiple campaigns and, you know, is still involved in, in this? Do you think that that was of utility to you bringing, um, bring it to the SIP2 college? And, you know, because sometimes I think people have a narrow, very narrow view of unions. And as you said yourself in this conversation, there can be the, the basic issue with the union is it's dealing with so many battles on so many different fronts. Mm-hmm. But, do you feel that that actually is of of utility in terms of working in that kind of context, having this broad activist background as well as a strong union background? As oh, well? very much so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, there's two there's two aspects to it. Hmm. First of all, um, you know, I, I think it's very important for the students themselves um, to see that there that there is a wider political involvement in unions. You know. Um, that they're, they're much broader. I mean, you know, the, an injury to, to one is the concern of all 
actually mean something, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and solidarity is a word that, you know, we talk about global solidarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, Congress global solidarity has come on by leaps and bounds over the last few years as well mm-hmm. and does a hell of a lot of work. One of the big problems is that people don't realize how much work they do. Yeah. Um, you know, so that that's um, important that people do understand that there is work going on in the unions in on all these issues, you mm. know. Um, I'm, I'm I'm still on the Congress Global Solidarity Committee myself, so I know you know that that is the case. Yeah. Um, and doing a lot of work, as I say. Uh, but that that that's one aspect is bringing the education to people. But the other thing is that I think your your activism um, brings an enthusiasm as well. Mm. You know, so that people understand that um, uh, because people do have a cynical view of unions, they do. You know. <laughs> And I always said that that what I am is I'm one of the loyal opposition. That's what I always called Mm. myself, you know, um, that I, I don't want people downing unions and they do, especially SIP2. We, we took a lot of that in our time, you know, about people that are rubbish, this, that, the other, there's an awful lot of good work goes on in unions. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of things that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the unions. And even if you look at the moment about, you know, the whole cost of living increases and all this kind of stuff. If the government weren't actually going to go into talks with the unions very soon on pay, there's no way that these would be happening. But the problem is people don't join the dots Mm. between the fact that you have a voice there. And, you know, 20 years ago, by the way, Congress's voice would have been much louder. Mm. Why? Because of union density. And so that's the thing that people forget as well. And people, you know, denigrate the unions and yet they wouldn't have the, the pay, they wouldn't have the terms and conditions, they wouldn't have the health and safety regulations that are there if it wasn't for strong unions. Yeah. And I'm always saying that to people, you know, you let unions die at your peril because it does safeguard everybody. Mm. Um, and that's the thing, you know, again, to try and um, for people to have that understanding that it isn't just about my pay and I work for Joe Bloggs, yeah. you know. It's about my pay relative to the world, to the universe. And even, uh, you know, what I always tried to do with people was give them a basic understanding of economics, for instance, as to, you know, what happens with your job. There was actually a great one. I I don't know if I still have it somewhere, but it's um, a Walmart. It was one of the, I think it was Uni Union had made it and it was the journey of a shirt in Walmart, Mm. a T-shirt. Right. And it was, you know, it, it was a little cartoon of about four minutes, but it showed, you know, that the exploitation of the person that was making it, the people yeah. in the warehouses that were being exploited yeah, and the people in the Walmart shops that were being exploited. And the, they reckoned that if you put maybe four cent on that five euro or five dollar T-shirt, that mm. that four cent would give much better terms and conditions the whole way down the line. So it wasn't a case of it's going to cost you twice the price. Because that's what, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, it, you know, it's so cheap and we couldn't afford to make it anywhere else. Yeah. But it's not that that's not the reality. So, you know, that, you know, your understanding of the broader, you know, solidarity actually brings you into that to be able to say to people, look, this is what unions are about. And this yeah. is the back end of it as well as the front end of it, you know, yeah. that's yeah, that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. and then the function of say the function just of the sip to college itself 
How do you see that continuing as things stand? And well, the college is physically gone from the South Circular now. It's yeah. it's uh, it would be in Liberty Hall, but um, mm. I suppose the pandemic, like everything else, has moved things on to um, much more online stuff online anyway. Methods, yeah, and and it was beginning to go that way. But there is a danger with something like that because uh, there there's some you can do online and mm. do quite well online. And I think that that's grand. But there's something about the solidarity that's built by having, say, shop stewards in a classroom together or something like that, yeah. or health and safety reps. And they can say, oh, Jesus, what happened to my job? Yeah, well, wait till I tell you now that this fellow did this or she did that or whatever. Yeah. And that kind of sharing um, you know, that that does make a difference. So it's a bit about the, the debate that's been having now about, you know, a hybrid kind of working thing for people mm. who work mm. from home or in the office. There is something in the pot that you miss if you don't have that. And I think with education, that's one of the things that unless you have that coming together of people physically, yeah. um, they you don't have the share. And, and like we would have people who were in the class, say, and they'd say to me two weeks later, oh, I rang Joe up. Because he'd said something and I rang him up to find out how he handled that. So you've suddenly got this help network there, which you don't necessarily have if you're on video because you don't get to relate the same stories over coffee or that kind of thing. You know? Yeah. So do you want to talk to us a bit about the book? Mm -hmm. uh, Left Lives in 20th Century Ireland, Volume 4, which is women and is published um, by Umskin Press. And of course, you edited it and it was released this last six months. So... Okay, well, how I got involved in this, of course, is, is, this is always the way, isn't it? You know, it's, it's sideways was that um, I think it was Left Lives, Left Lives 1 or 2 mm. was being launched and um, there were very few women in it. Mm. And uh, I said to Jack McGinley uh, the, uh, from Umskin, I said to him, um, you know, what's the story here? And he said, oh, well, you know, we're trying to uh, get more women uh, in it. And then the next volume that came out, um, to be fair, he had tried. And so I had agreed to do a chapter on Sylvia Meehan, mm. which I did oh, yeah. for, for that one. And I knew Sylvia. Sylvia was a wonderful woman. And um, yeah, so I said I'd do that uh, that chapter anyway. And of course, it turned out to be the only woman in the book because there were another couple that were supposed to be done and for one reason or other they didn't. Mm. So I berated Jack, of course, and said, you know, this, this isn't good enough. So, you know, when you do that, you always get, well, where will you look after the next one? <laughs> so that's how I ended up editing it. As I say, it's not learning how to duck, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was what happened with it anyway. But, and then, of course, it ended up being a pandemic thing. So, mm. you know, people you had asked to write couldn't write or people couldn't get to research and all that kind of stuff. So the the list that ended up in the book is not necessarily the list we started with. But, you know, that's no harm either, because we will come back again uh, to some of the others, you know. Mm. Um, so so that that's the in essence how I ended up being in the midst of it, you know. And how how did you approach the project? I mean, what was your criteria for inclusion or exclusion? Or was it you know, did you did you sorry, I should I should preface this. Did you start out with a set list of people? These are the people I'd really like to have either writing or to be the subject the, um, the, the Half and half. There mm. were some people who, you know, came to mind straight away names of people that we you know we wanted included. Yeah. Um, 
And then, you know, also, well, names of people who would possibly write something. Mm. So it didn't necessarily end up that, you know, we got what we wanted as regards, you know, asking a particular person uh, that they might say, well, I, I would really like to do something on. Right. Sure, look, if you're looking at the fact that there's been no writing about women in labor history for so long. Yeah. Uh, well, then, sure. Aren't they all welcome? You know, because, yeah. you know, and all of the women were worthy women in their own right. So just point. because I might know a few. And then the other thing is that there are a couple of women who I would love to see included in something who I would call background women in some ways. Um, there was a woman called Nora O'Neill, for instance, who was um, in the Labour Party. And mm. she was an amazing woman. Uh, she actually worked as she worked with Michael O'Leary as Minister for Labour. She was in she was civil service in that civil servants in that department. Right. Um, you know, people like that that had a lot of influence in the back rooms. Mm. But where do you get research on? them? Yeah. You know, uh, and these are the kind of things that happen in the end is there are people who you think are very worthy. And the other thing, by the way, is and, and, and it astounded me when I started doing work on Sylvia Meehan, mm. that there was much less there written about her than I thought there should have been. Right. You know, so the sources weren't even there. Uh, and again, what does that go back to? Function of her gender. Yeah. You know, and it's scary. It really is. So, you know, unless we start writing about them, there won't be the references to them. Yeah. And that was where I came up with the idea that I actually wanted to include people that were still around mm. if we could as well, because at least there was some chance of being able to interview friends, relations or colleagues, work colleagues of people yeah. and get firsthand stuff. Yeah. So, for instance, um, the Maureen Johnson is a prime example. Maureen's a friend of mine. I dearly love Maureen. And yeah. I mean, I went out to her house and I interviewed her now. I'd have to say that there's one tenth of the tapes are in the book because some of them I couldn't put in the book anyway. Couldn't suspected uh, that. <laughs> but the other thing as well is that we went off on tangents that were nothing to do with the book, but they were so amusing and amazing. You know, if you were doing a social mm. history thing, mm. I'd sit down with Maureen for hours, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's the great thing about somebody like that. So at least, you know, the, the stuff, now there is a bit on Maureen as well because, she was involved in the contraceptive train, as people will probably know, and yeah. you know from that itself. Uh, but again, I mean, Maureen's one of those people that she tried to set up. Um, she tried to unionize creches and have um, mobile creches for conferences and things like that in order that women could get more involved. So you're talking 30 years ago doing that, you know, uh, and people forget that those are the kind of issues that are still facing women now as regards involvement you know so you know that's why it's interesting to talk to those kind of people i'm trying to there were a couple of other people that were involved that if well of course um mary marr i mean Mm. mary marr seamus dooley um was a great friend of mary marr so he was able to um you know i mean he could personally give anecdotes about mary and even evelyn owens for instance seamus Mm told me a gem about Evelyn Owens um, that was actually quite, you know, quite funny. Uh, and she was always viewed as kind of an austere character. Right. But she was very funny, you know. Yeah. So, uh, again, that you know, you have a human, a human aspect to these people that you won't have if you're reading a book 50 years on. 
It's. I think in Charles Collins' essay, he mentions him, he's where he's talking about Tim Harper. He mentions like that there was nobody from the union movement at her funeral. That was no. I, that was an awful thing. Now, shocking. I, I, yeah, I really, you know, I, I'm I'm sad about that. And I mean, I would have gone to to yeah. her funeral because I knew her myself. Uh, I'm. I think I was out of the country at the time. But as I say, um, you know, Dymphna, and she was one of those people. She was. She did Power. much more. Yeah, much more than people would ever give her credit for. And also, I mean, that she was. She was steadfast, you know, mm. and you know one of those people that turned up all the time and you could always depend on to turn up and, you know, would have been, I wouldn't say be used by the union hierarchy, but, you know, would have been, you know, the, the go-to person for an awful lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that is particularly, yeah, it is particularly yeah. sad when you think something like that, you know? And, I mean, the other side there is like people like Porokin uh, Nimurk, who or, um, well, as you said, Evelyn Owens and uh, I mean, Mary, Mary O'Brien, I mean, you're reading about these people and some of these people I'm obviously reading about for the first time when I read this because I'm not I'm not I'm a member of SIP2, but I'm not heavily involved in that yeah, side of it. Yeah, yeah. And this is and this is where I think the power of this this book is. I mean, that's not for me to say, but I think like it's it uncovers this network of people who mm -hmm. happen to be women who are a layer of activists and activism, which is literally sustained unionism mm -hmm. across decades and has never really been referenced as you say that it doesn't seem to be the 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 focus on it or the you know until the you know until now or at least until very recently well it's that thing about what isn't counted isn't valued isn't it yeah you know that um their work i mean may o'brien was amazing the stuff she did on equality she she really was groundbreaking yeah. and in spite of the union in, in a lot of ways. Do you know what I mean? That comes through very strongly across a lot of these stories. Oh, look. But you see, there, there's this this problem, you know, that the unions are hierarchical male structures, male constructs, if you like, in the first mm -hmm. place. And if you think where they came from, that's understandable, you know, yeah. uh, because they were the crafts originally and whatever. And they were crafts men, you know, mm -hmm. and, the, you know, the whole, the whole history of trade unionism comes from that. I often think if Conley had lived would things have been different? Because if you looked, you know, Connolly actually involved women yeah, uh, a lot, uh, even in the Citizens' Army and whatever, mm. you know. Um, and I think, you know, had he been around, things might have been slightly different, mm. one would hope. Uh, you know, it still is a, a, a big fight they have. And therefore, and you see it a lot of literature about women in general being in the background, mm on a lot of things, you know, mm. um, doing the, the grunt work all the time. So they do the research and then the men get up and do the presentations. Yeah. And, you know, you will also be told, by the way, that bosses will do it, not necessarily because they're putting women down, but they know they can rely on the women to do the work. Yeah. You know, so, you know, becoming the willing horse uh, you know, it means that you're you end up with with the you know the more of the work, but not necessarily the the kudos at the end of it. You know, yeah. And you know, again, you talk about I've seen it happen. Um, you know, in interviews uh, with people, women do not sell themselves in the same way as men do. And actually, Joan Carmichael, um, who was another great woman, Joan was the uh, deputy general secretary of Congress, mm -hmm. um. I remember Joan saying to me, uh, we were talking about when I was doing the stuff on equality in Congress about women and, and uh, interviews. And she said she had a woman in front of her once 
who was highly qualified and had mounted a great campaign on a particular issue. Mm. And she said she was sitting in front of the, the panel and she hardly mentioned this campaign at all, where she said if 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 the if been one of the guys, you know, he would have said, and by the way, do you know? And and you did know, didn't you? And and you knew, you know. Uh, and Joan said she had to actually pull her out and say, well, you're involved in this. Yeah, well, you know, I did that. And still wasn't bigging herself up. So, you know, there's probably a bit of that as well, that if the, if the women don't big themselves up in the same way, yeah. well, then they're not going to be noticed as well. Uh, but also, you know, they're working in the patriarchy. Mm. And, you know, um, if they have a good thought, it might not necessarily go down very well either, you know? Yeah. The, that reminds me that, or it brings to mind the thought that, like, what this is, is in some ways it's a forensic look at the obstacles that we're facing women, particularly. And it's interesting you mentioned Connolly there because Connolly comes out as a, an enlightened person in many oh. ways, but but no more so than the, the women who were involved in the ICA and so forth, oh. who oh. then had, you know, there was this step towards independence, but it seemed to be two steps forward and two steps back in oh. some ways, actually a little bit further back again for women in particular in society. And then issues like equal pay, um, the marriage bar, just... And shockingly, in a way, like the way, you know, how they had to contend with that for decades and decades and decades subsequently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you see, men men were not going to support women necessarily because it it meant that they might get done down. So if you think, for instance, if a man in a school, um, you know, is he going to support uh, the, the female member staff she might get promoted over him if he supports her hmm. you know so th- there's all those those layers to it you know and um and the other thing as well is that he's been brought up to believe that he's you know he's entitled hmm. you know so why why would the woman get the job i actually remember an interview for um a union position in an in, in another union and i won't name the union hmm. But it came down to, and you know, in the trade union room, you'd, you'd be hear people talking about who did think you think was favorite for the job. Hmm. And there was a woman who was favorite for the job. And anyway, the guy got it. And we said afterwards, well, you know, what was the story? And they said, well, you know, they were kind of came up equal at the, the meeting. And you're saying hmm. to yourself, yeah, yeah, you know, because you asked the lad the right questions and whatever, you know. Um, and but putting that aside, you know, the, the woman may not have sold herself as much as he sold himself or whatever. And I said, well, if it was equal, I said, why didn't you give it to her? And they said, oh, yeah, but he had a wife and three kids at home. And I'm going, oh, my God, did you just say that? I said, this is the trade union movement. We're supposed to be championing equality. How could you say that? So if that is, you know, if that's the mindset of people, it's very hard to get them out of that mindset as well, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, without question, it's been significant progress, but there's still a lot of areas that mm-hmm. I mean, and this book uncovered. Yeah, you know, reading it implicitly, you you see where there remains so much yet to be mm-hmm. done. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one other thing that struck me as well was like the you know with Monica McWilliams in it as well. Like, it's not afraid to to go north, as it were, and to see like and to well, bring in that experience of women. That was that was one of the other things that we were conscious of was the fact that. Um, Laura McKee, of course. You know, yeah, the the, board, the border doesn't uh, mm. stop women from being good, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, Monica McWilliams, again, you know, on the international scene, yeah. you know. 
Uh, and this is the, they, these are the kind of people that um, I think it is important to have as role models, you know. Hmm. Uh, and then Lyra, I, again, you know, she was fighting, uh, you know, and, and much younger. So just trying to say to people, you know, apart from anything else, um, that the left is much more than, you know, the old men in smoke filled rooms as it used to be, you know. Uh, and there's much more going on there. And could I say, by the way, you know, for all I have said, and it sounds awful, I have had so much crack in my life in the labor movement yeah. and in the trade union movement. Yeah. And I've worked with some great men, you know, so I'm not a man hater, uh, but you have to be able to look at this and see the reality of it. Mm. And the reality of it is that women are the minority in these things. And until they they do hold a higher position yeah. and you know sometimes people will say oh well that woman she got up there but she kicked the ladder away but the problem is she got up there in the male world mm. so she got up by playing exactly the same way as the men played mm. you know so it's not necessarily that you know all women are going to lift all women and you'll hear this people oh well women should vote for women you don't necessarily vote for a woman because she's a woman. You vote for a woman because she's a good woman. You could, yeah. But you can't expect just the women in the movement to carry yeah. it for women. There should be men voting for good women as well, you know? So I, I think we have to get that, you know, that mindset out that it's up to women to help women necessarily, you know? It's up to people to help women, you know? Are you optimistic about that? Mm, in a word, no. Okay. <laughs> Right. I think when you get to, to my age and you look back and you think of all that you thought would change mm. and you realize that, you know, only half of it has changed mm. uh, and that's over, you know, what I suppose, uh, you know, say 50 years of acti activism. Mm. Well, then, you know, what does that say? How many more years mm. to change the rest of it? You know? Yeah. It's one of those things you see in, um, you know, when people argue against the, the quotas in terms of, of um, mm -hmm. elections, that the number of women in, in representative positions is increasing. But if you follow that rate, the time to get to 50 percent or something is 100 years. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an absurd it. yeah. kind of. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, attitudes do change. That's it. I mean, you know, young people, young people, of course, young people aren't. A have they? Group, but yeah. you see, people always say that. Hmm. But if you look at, you know, if you look at families today, mm. um, okay, you might have the, the middle class man who pushes the pram and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but I still hear men saying things like, well, I looked after the kids. Yeah. And you're going, mm -hmm. I actually said to a guy in class one day, he said to me, oh, I minded the kids for her. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize they weren't yours. I said, I mean, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, you said you minded the kids for her, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you know, you have to point these things out yeah. to people that that's the reality, you know? Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. So it's, to me, it's um, it, it's difficult to, to move. And the problem is now, I'm sure anybody looking, to the, looking at this tape now afterwards about me will say, well, that one's a right bitch. Oh, no. So, and that one, oh, she's a man hater and whatever. Because the problem is, if you keep saying it all the time, mm. and this happens in the movement, mm. people go, oh, Jesus, there she goes again. Mm. You know, and, and it becomes that, that you feel, yeah, and it's very tiring sometimes 
to be the person forever saying the same thing. Yeah. You know, oh, Jesus. You know, now I always try and address it with humor. And I find, you know, a lot of the time, especially if I had men in the class that were chauvinists, mm-hmm. you know, there was no point in me lecturing to them. It was saying the likes of that to them that, you know, actually would make them think more than if I said to them, oh, you can't say something like that in my class, you know. Uh, but it is very trying. And if people if people think, and a lot of men do think that things have gone out, you know, I've heard it said it's gone too far, you know, and I've heard yeah. trade union men say it's gone too far, you yeah. know. And, you know, this thing oh. about, oh, it's all woke now and you can't say this and you can't say that, you know. No, you can't say it because it's offensive, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality of it. But that's, you know, that's the problem that, you know, it, it is difficult to be the minority woman in those situations pushing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, nobody, nobody likes to be confronted with it constantly, but that's no. the only way to yeah. to implement change is that you kind of... And and it's it's presumably tedious for women to have to continue to do that. Yeah, as well. yeah. you know, you'd love to so say sometimes, give listen. me a break, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's wearing. It just yeah, it 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 yeah, it grinds people down basically. Yeah, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's it's a bit like you know the struggle just continues without without getting performative about it. The struggle just continues mm. because if people like yourself aren't out there doing this then everything falls by the wayside in a way, you know, and, yeah. and, and again, you know, it's kind of humbling actually when, again, reading the accounts of people who for very little reward mm. kept doing the right thing mm-hmm. time and time mm. and time again and mm-hmm. going to workplaces and unionizing people who had little voice themselves and sometimes were very reactionary themselves, mm. but oh, at the yeah. same time oh, yeah. were yeah. willing to, there was some spark in them of, yeah. I don't know, empathy, generosity, fellow feeling, mm-hmm. comradeship, who knows what. And then it just gets that little bit better after that, and a little bit better. And it's 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 inspirational in that sense, because you I see how real challenges can be overcome. With, with some of those women, had they been in the corporate world, yeah. by God, oh my God, would they have been amazing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's the reality of it, isn't it? You know, is that um, they were obviously, you know, powerhouses, you know, they had to be. It's the old thing about misogyny. It's like if you've cut off half the intellect and thinking of the human race and you expect the human race to achieve anything mm. and you've cut yeah. off half it, where is it going to be if you actually say, no, the other half, we have to have the other half too and we'll see where we go next. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a waste of human resources. Yeah. In, in, a, in Not in a negative or utilitarian or, God forbid, fascistic sense, but in the sense of like, Mm-hmm. You know, this amazing resource, the human brain, and you say, no, half of you can't be part of it. Mm. And and the half that can't be part of it, by the way, I often think this, that, you know, the way you, you'll often hear with households, people saying, well, Mammy was the real boss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and Mammy was. And Mammy was very clever. Yeah. And yet, at the end of the day, if you all were brought up like that, when Mammy's like that, why don't you regard Mammy's like that more in the workplace? Uh, you know, so that there's something there, isn't there, about uh, yeah. that there's a part of recognition, but it's not one to recognize, you know. In terms of the visibility of women, and you've mentioned that you've touched on this a little while ago about like how during the pandemic in particular, it was difficult to get uh, information. Obviously, archives mm. shut down effectively during this period. Mm. And 
it, actually it's astounding again rethinking about it like um how much detail there is for pretty much all the people there but at the same time there is a lack of visibility there's a lack of stuff obviously in some instances where you kind of go well i'd really like to have learnt, known a bit more about that again would you think that an awful lot of that is a function again of the gender aspects of this like that it's the the story is well simply not recorded basically mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and there's no sense of it being necessary or important to be recorded or yeah I, I would agree i mean if you think about an awful lot of the biographies that have been done about men in the trade union movement mm -hmm. you know there's very few major biographies of women in the trade union movement yeah and um you know there's another woman for instance patricia king mm. i mean patricia king is one yes, she's some woman for one woman and she's never compromised on patricia isn't one of the people that you know went to the pub after um after the meeting or stuff like that which is mm -hmm. what women had to do in some ways in order to know be in the loop and know what was going on you know yeah. mm -hmm. so she she continued and she got to where she got without playing the game in some ways mm -hmm. so she's another example of a woman who quietly did but by God, is she good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yet, you know, you don't hear her mentioned that much either, you know? No. I mean, how does a woman get to be the General Secretary of Congress? Yeah. Very unusual, isn't it, you know? Yeah. So so it's a societal aversion, in a sense, to actually facing up to this, or... Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think of the ways of getting around that, or making it so that in the future... I mean, obviously, we live in a more data-saturated and information-saturated world. There's, I mean, there's more photographs of all of us and some people have had you know a thousand times in their lifetime back in the 30s or 50s mm -hmm. or even 70s do, do you think there are ways forward to ensure that these stories are actually acquired or kept or or or, or collated is probably well i word. think for instance mary mcauliffe now who who um mm, covered the chapter in the book i mean mary would be one of those feminist historians who is you know really trying to do that yeah. And and that's great. But I think until we control more mainstream media and things like that, mm. you know, unless you have a slot where that information gets told. Um, uh, for instance, there was a, a, a I had something on Facebook yesterday about a woman, I think she's from Tipperary, whose name will escape me because I'm used to names. But she was the first female vet. And it was a hundred years ago, you know. So, uh, you know, did you know that was the woman from, from Tipperary was the first female vet? No. You know, I mean, those are the kind of things that you know they they pop up every so often, uh, and there are so so many of of those remarkable women mm. who just you know don't have anything written about. Mm. So until mainstream media actually highlights those kind of things, I I don't think you know. Again, it's it's if you can't see it, you can't be it. You know, so uh, if we tell the stories often enough, but to tell the stories, we have to be able to take over the history show or those kind of things, you know. Well, listen, thank you. Thank you so much for talking Not to us so. today. Not so. You know, it's fantastic. Yeah.